Uh, it's good to be together and to worship corporately. Um, part of what I'm going to talk about today is how uh, worship is actually an overflow of thankfulness, an overflow of being connected to God. And so it's nice to be able to come on Sunday mornings and do this together as, uh, as a community. All right, we're going to, before I jump into a message, we're going to just spend some time praying as a church. We're going to spend some time praying for Ukraine. I was up here last week giving a bit of an update on what's going on. Uh, they were about they were three days into the war last Sunday, and now it's been a week more. And as you've watched the news, things are getting worse. Uh, more and more people are dying. There's over a million refugees that have uh, fled Ukraine already. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to watch. Um, we have missionaries in Ukraine, so I'm on the phone every day. I'm getting firsthand reports of what's actually happening on the ground, and. Uh, so a little bit of an update. So we have Andre and Luda are in the east. They live in Zaporozhye. Zaporozhye is where that power plant was on fire two days ago. That almost went. That would have been really bad news. So a few days before that, Andre and Luda decided we got to get out of here. And so they went west. Uh, so they are settled in western Ukraine. They don't want to leave the country. They are helping so many people. They're on the front lines for getting humanitarian work uh, coming in from Poland and all over Europe. And it's coming to them in western Ukraine. And then they're distributing it. Uh, out east, and so they are committed to staying. And so we want to pray for Andre and Luda. Uh, the seniors that are there, the seniors that we care for in Zaporozhye, they're not going anywhere. Uh, the comment they made this week is, we grew up in war and we're going to, you know, we might end our life in war. And so that's just what they're used to. And so they're staying put. Uh, there is good news, though. They are gathering. The seniors ministry that we have, we reach over 350 seniors in the Zaporozhye area. Uh, they're gathering more often and gathering in the church and praising and uh, caring for one another and praying together, and it's really cool. And uh, seniors who were reluctant to come, seniors who didn't want to be part of a Christian community are coming now into the doors, and some of those have even come to faith. And so even in the midst of the darkness and the pain and the war, uh, there are good things that we can celebrate and we can pray for, so we're grateful for that. We have... We have 16 girls, they are once orphaned women, uh, in Kiev. Uh, all but four have gotten out. We've helped them get out of Kiev, and they've made it across the border uh, amazingly. Uh, four of the girls we got jobs in Czech Republic for. There's other girls that are in Poland, they got jobs. There's going to be other girls we're looking at uh, getting maybe refugee status here in Canada. So I think there's going to be a lot of work uh, once this all kind of settles out. Uh, work rebuilding Ukraine. It's going to be a lot of humanitarian effort that goes into Ukraine. And then work, you know, helping the refugees and the internally displaced people. So that's an update. Those are, that's what I'm hearing from the ground, from the people that we are directly working with. Um, yeah, and, and this week, a lot of civilian lives were lost. This week, a lot of civilian buildings were um, destroyed. And so this is, this is war, and it's really, it's really sad. And so what can we do? We can pray. You know, we can pray. Uh, so we'll pray for peace. We'll pray for shalom. We'll pray for, uh, for the leaders. We'll pray for peace talks. We'll pray for some sort of resolution because innocent people's lives are suffering, both Ukrainian and Russian. Innocent lives are suffering. So we want to pray for people on both sides. And we'll pray for our seniors that, are, that can't leave and they're just in their homes, hoping that this will all resolve itself at some point. And we'll pray for the church. The local church is mobilized. They are helping. I know the churches that I'm talking to in Zaporozhye, in eastern Ukraine, they are, they are out giving food and uh, medicine and visiting seniors. They are on the front lines helping people. 
so many people in the church are saying, this is, this is a time for us to really be a light in our community. And so that's what they're doing. And so we're going to continue to pray with them. We're going to continue to stand with them. So let's just spend some time as a church praying for these things. Father God, we, we, just, we acknowledge you as creator of the universe and of Lord of lords. And this is a world that you love, and it's filled with people that you love, and war is never a good thing. And so, Lord God, we want to pray, want to pray for peace. We pray for shalom. We pray that this conflict would come to an end quickly. God, we pray for the leaders that have authority, that they would fight for ways to find peace, find resolution, find ways to bring an end to this. God, we pray for them. We pray for those that are going to be sitting at the table for the third time uh, with peace negotiations on either side, Ukrainian and Russian, Lord, that they can come to a resolution, Lord, we pray. Bring peace. Pray for the so many innocent people in Ukraine and in Russia who are suffering. God, in this time of darkness and pain, would they uh, somehow sense your presence and feel a strength that you give. God, we pray for the church. We pray for the local church, for Christians, that they would be a light in their communities, that they would uh, have courage, that they would be able to bring messages of hope when all around is darkness. God, we know that that's the message of the gospel. It is a message of hope. We pray that that will happen. That we hear more stories of renewal and revival even in the darkness. God, we praise you for that. We praise you for the way the churches are mobilizing themselves to bring in help and care. We thank you for them, Lord. We pray for all the refugees trying to cross the borders, Lord, that they'd make it across safely, that they would find work, that they would be taken care of. We thank you for the, the many stories that we see of Europeans embracing Ukrainian refugees. Lord, and we pray that... Uh, that as this comes to an end, hopefully soon, that Ukraine would be able to be rebuilt. And uh, yeah, we just pray for the humanitarian efforts that are going to uh, come up after this. And that's certainly ways that we as a church can get behind. So Lord, we don't understand why these things happen and we recognize we live in a broken world. But still we know that you are sovereign, Lord, and that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we bow before you because you are the one true God. And so, Jesus, we pray these things together as a church and we ask for peace and we pray for peace in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm happy to say that we're able to still talk with all of them in Ukraine. We're able to get money in there. We're able to load up bank cards and... Uh, you know, we've been able to really help them. So I'm grateful for that, and I pray that that will continue. Hopefully those lines don't get shut down. So you can, if you're looking for things to pray about, that's something to pray about. Okay. Time to switch. It's not that easy to switch, but I think, I think uh, what I'm going to say today has some relevance to what we're going through in the world. So Willow Park is in a series on David, and so I want to... I want to honor where they're at and uh, continue in that. So as a kid, King's, King David's life uh, utterly captivated me. I don't know how many of you guys had that illustrated Bible, that comic book Bible, the action Bible. I loved that as a kid. And I read that over and over again. 
And I read the Old Testament more than the New Testament because there was a lot more action. And I read David the most because it was the most action. And I was just fascinated by David's story. I was fascinated by the underdog story, right? Here's a shepherd boy, lowest in his family, and he rises up to become king. And he kills bears and cougars as he's protecting sheep, and he kills giants. And he's just this amazing person, just incredible uh, story. What's always intrigued me, even as a kid, was that phrase, David was a man after God's own heart. What, what is it that made David a man after God's own heart? And that was the question that I often asked myself. What does it take to become a man after God's own heart? I have finally put away that comic book Bible and have been reading my real Bible. But uh, as I've done that, I've actually become a lot more interested in David's thought and prayer life. And you see David's thought and prayer life in the Psalms, primarily. And for a long time, I have gotten into the habit of praying through and reading the Psalms on a daily basis. And it has really helped my prayer life. What I love about the Psalms is it gives, it gives me language for the things that I want to say to God, sometimes when I'm not sure what to say. And um, I feel like I, when I'm praying the Psalms, I feel like I'm, I'm part of the historical church. And you know that the Psalms was actually the church's hymn book uh, right up until only 100 years ago when we become a little bit more modern. But the Psalms were always like the church's worship book, even in the Old Testament and in the early church. The Psalms were, were crucial as, we, as, as uh, God's people prayed and sought him out. Uh, well over 50% of the Psalms, David wrote. And so if you want to know how David thought and what was in his heart, you can read the Psalms. You can kind of catch a glimpse of it. And you might be able to see why David was considered a man after God's own heart. And so uh, we are going to talk about um, David's heart. So Psalm 63, if you have your Bibles, open it up. We're going to just kind of work our way through Psalm 63. It's going to be a meditation this morning on this incredible passage. Psalm 63 is often considered the greatest psalm of intimacy, the greatest picture of a connection with God that you see in the Psalms. It speaks about a deep yearning for God. It speaks about this deep connection that you can have with God. It speaks about a satisfaction of the soul that David experienced as he looked for God. Uh, as I was studying the passage, I found it really interesting that a number of commentators uh, mentioned this. Church father, John Chrysostom, John uh, he's in the 6th century. He was like the most famous pastor at that time in, uh, in Constantinople. And he said this, it was decreed and ordained by all the church fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. So the church in that day said, every day, read and pray Psalm 63. It was that prominent and it was that important. I've titled this sermon, Seeking God in the Wilderness. Uh, the context of the psalm, and if you have your Bibles open, you actually see it at the top there. The context is the psalm was written in the wilderness. David was running away from Saul. You might remember Saul was king. He didn't want David to be king, and so he's chasing after Saul with his army, trying to kill him. And so David fleed, and he was hiding out in the desert, and he was afraid, and, uh, and in this anguish. And within this wilderness, he writes this psalm, Psalm 63. And so I chose this topic today because I think for many people in these, these days of COVID and lockdowns and, uh, and now war and social divisions, Oftentimes it feels like we're in the wilderness, doesn't it? I mean, this week as I've talked to my friends in Ukraine, I've just thought, what a wilderness place that they are in. How incredibly sad it is to have to live through that. It is unknown, 
it's unsettling, and it's fearful. And yet, don't we know that often uh, some of the most profound experiences in our life actually happen in the wilderness? If you study revivalist history throughout church history, almost every time a revival happened, it happened because it needed to happen. There was something wrong with the culture and the society that they were living in, and it was kind of like wilderness for them as a culture and a society. And then out of that, revival came. So as uncomfortable as it is, sometimes we need wilderness experiences so that we can reorientate our lives around the things that really matter in life. And I think that's what's happening here in Psalm 63 with David. Uh, throughout my own life, especially in the last two years, I've found great comfort in psalms like this one, and especially this one. So, let's read it. It is up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. So, Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Should we read it together? Let's do it. I love it. Okay, I'll start over again. We'll read it together. I'll read it slowly, okay? You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. All right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reading that. Okay. Let's work our way through it. I'm going to spend a lot of time in verse 1, so don't get worried, because by the time I get to verse 2, I'll start speeding it up, okay? <laughs> oh, God, you are my God. Seems kind of basic, doesn't it? But this God, creator of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent, uh, knows everything. God, you are my God. How personal is that? God is our God. You are my God. This is not just head knowledge. This is not just understanding that God exists or understanding that God is real. No, it's so much deeper than that. God, you are my God. Personal, individual. It's so much deeper than what's up in here. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We'll flip it over there. Sorry, Chris, we're just going to, yeah, we're not going to be able to get through, uh, we're not going to stay on the slides, so, yeah, perfect, thank you. I live by faith in the Son of God, this is what Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in the Greek, loved me and gave himself for me, that is a personal pronoun, single personal pronoun, ego ami, God loved me, and he gave himself for me. So it was about corporate church, as much as he was about the community, as much as he was about the collective faith, 
he was also very much about God loved me. God died for me. Very personal. And that's what David is saying. Oh God, you are my God. Personal, individual. You are Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. Now we start seeing why David was a man after God's own heart. We, he wasn't perfect. We all know that. But his heart was for God. His heart was in the right place. He sought after God. Again, not just head knowledge for him. This is like real relationship stuff. Earnestly I seek for you. When I read this, every time I come across passages like this, I have to stop and pause and go, Chris, do you seek after him? Can you, does this describe your life, your faith? Earnestly, earnestly, I seek after you. Sometimes, I mean, I'll be honest, sometimes I wonder if we've made Christianity too personal. We've made it too much about relationship with God. And it's come at the expense of, of uh, corporate and community gathering. I think there's some truth in that in North America, we've made it very private, made it very individualistic, and we haven't valued the corporate aspect of it enough. But that should never diminish how personal it is and how individual it still is. Um, We all have the privilege of seeking God and knowing God for ourselves. Christian history is full of people throughout the ages that have sought after God. It's not just David. It happened uh, from the very beginning. And so what I want to do, I want to read a few quotes for you. Can I kind of take you through a journey of Christian history of some of the great Christian thinkers uh, from the beginning until now? So Augustine of Hippo. <coughs> Sorry. Augustine, you've probably heard of him. He's probably one of the greatest theologians. He was a uh, 5th century. He says this, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest achievement. This is Augustine. He was at the top of the social ladder. He was a famous teacher, a famous rhetoric in the most famous city of the Roman Empire at that time. And he said to fall in love is the greatest romance. He, he couldn't find satisfaction in his life until he found God. And he says it's the greatest human achievement. Thomas Akempis. What shall, or what return shall I make to the Lord for his love? This grace so boundless. There is nothing I can give more pleasing than to offer my heart completely to my God, uniting it closely with his. It's beautiful. You know, in the English revivalists, they all read Thomas Akempis and they all grew from this book, Imitations in Christ, because Thomas Akempis talks about this passionate, personal connection with God that I want to unite my life so closely with him. Hannah Moore, here's one of the revivalists in England. This is what she says, genuine religion demands not merely an external profession of our allegiance to God, but an inward devotedness of ourselves to his service. It is not a recognition, but a dedication. Because recognition is just up here in your head, but dedication is in your heart. And she says, it's not just about what's up here. It's not just knowing that God exists. It's about connecting with him and dedicating yourself to him. Hannah Moore, one of the foremost revivalists in in England at the time. Richard Sibbs, here's a Puritan. He says, the soul is never at rest till it rests in him. The soul grows in the spirit and finds sweet communion. So many Christians throughout the centuries have said this. Your soul will not find rest until it rests in him. This is how you find communion. Then we're going to go to somebody that you would all know, C.S. Lewis. He says, continue seeking God with seriousness. 
Unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. Classic C.S. Lewis quote, right? Unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. The very fact that you're here, the very fact that you have a desire in your heart to, to seek the transcendent, that's evidence that God exists right there because God put that in you. He wants you to know him. He's given you the desire in your soul to know him. So seek after him because that's when you're going to be most satisfied. That's when you're going to be most filled. And William Lane Craig's become one of my favorite modern-day apologists, and he says, if you sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evidence to you. So I described a few quotes, but I, I could spend a whole day uh, talking about uh, the history of Christian spirituality and how people have been drawn to God and want to know him intimately. Uh, relationship with God, this is not just wishful thinking. This is not just something nice that the preacher says up front. This is for real. The living God wants to know you. The living God wants to fill your soul. He wants to satisfy you. That's what faith is all about. Yeah, I, I get to go to the mission field. I get to go to many different places and visit missionaries, and I get to talk to people that are influenced by missionaries. Oftentimes, they're new converts, and I ask them, like, what drew you to faith? Or tell me about your experience. I hear this story over and over again, and they say, I was empty, my soul was dry, I, I, I couldn't figure out the meaning of life, and then I found Jesus. And all of a sudden, it all made sense to me. And I felt the nearness of God. So many people have told me, I, I, was on the, I was on the edge of the cliff. I was on the edge of depression. I just didn't know what to do with my life. And then I actually tangibly felt the presence of God, and it changed everything. Over and over again, I hear these stories from people from all around the world, which convinces me it's not just wishful thinking, that this is actually for real. It's a lived, real experience. Just as the Bible says, just as David says in the psalm, people are experiencing today. So the end of uh, verse 1 there, it says, I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Again, wow, I thirst for you. I long for you. See David's heart, his passion, his desire. My whole body longs for you. It's like I feel it in every fiber of my being. God, I want to know you. I'm thirsty for you. Thirst is a powerful metaphor for our soul's longing for God. Just as we can't live physically without being hydrated, our soul can't be satisfied without the presence of God. And that's why the image of thirst comes up over and over again throughout the scriptures. So I want to take you on a journey, a little journey here on what the scriptures say about being thirsty because David's not the only one that talks about this. Isaiah 55. I think it's up there. And God is speaking to the people of Israel who, kind of wandered off. And he says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. So God himself uses uh, thirst and water as a metaphor, as a spiritual metaphor. Come to me. Are you thirsty? Come to me. I will satisfy you. I will give you the richest affair. Why are you going to other places? Why are you trying to find bread and wine in other places? You're not going to fill yourself. You're not going to find satisfaction in those places. This is a deep metaphor for uh, spiritual things. Jeremiah, very similar context. God's people have wandered away from him. And this is what he says. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So two sins. 
They've forsaken God, and God calls himself the spring of living water. He's the one that quenches the thirst. He's the one that satisfies your soul. The second sin, they went somewhere else. They went to a different well, and they dug their own cistern, and the cistern doesn't hold water. How many people's stories is that? We are looking for satisfaction and meaning and hope in things that don't hold up. When the well, the water of life is right there. It's accessible for all of us. And this leads me to John 4. You guys remember this story well. The Samaritan woman, she's the outcast. I taught this in youth last Sunday. And she has nothing. And Jesus offers her, what does he offer her? Living water. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water, it's the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus says, you know, all those passages that talk about thirst and water and springs, here I am. I am the fulfillment. I'm the one that gives that to you. I am the living water. Come to me and you won't thirst again. And what happens to the lady? The Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. She becomes one of the first missionaries in church history. She goes back to Samaria, tells her whole village, and they all start following Jesus. It's amazing. One of the last paragraphs in the Bible, Revelation 22, speaks about water. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Of course, they're not talking about physical thirst. This is all a spiritual metaphor. Our souls are thirsty for God. And that's what David's saying. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So these are just a few highlights in scripture. Just as God created us physically to need hydration through water or beverages, our soul is, is in desperate need for God. If we, want to be, if we want our thirsty souls to be quenched, we need God. He created us for that. That's what we were created for. And if we're not tapping into that, we will not feel that satisfaction and that hope that God wants so desperately to give us. Okay, so I spent a lot of time on verse 1 because verse 1 really sets the tone for this psalm. So I'll, I'll start going a bit quicker, okay? Uh, verse 2 and 3. Uh, I've seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you and I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. So what do you do when you're in the wilderness? What does David do? He thinks about all the ways God has been faithful to him in the past. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory. Your love is better than life. So he remembers in the past of all the ways God has been good to him, all the ways that God has been faithful to him. And he says, oh, your love is better than life. And so then, what is the result for David? It's glorifying lips. My lips will praise you. I will praise you. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. See, thankfulness follows people who are close to God. Worship is an expression of your nearness to God, which is why it's so good for us to be together on Sunday mornings so that we can express thankfulness and worship to God. With singing lips, we will praise God as we remember his faithfulness in his past and as we claim the promises of his faithfulness in the future. Worship is a result of thankful people. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, Real, I often have youth come up to me or young adults, Chris, what's God's will for my life? I say, here, go read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice in the Lord always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you. Done. You got your life figured out. Be joyful and pray 
and be thankful. And this is what David does. And he's in the wilderness and he's being hunted. And yet he remembers God's faithfulness and he can't help but praise and worship. God's love is better than life. This is why David's considered a man after God's own heart. Because he says things like this. Your love is better than life. It's amazing. Okay, verse 6, 7, and 8. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. So there's a few images here that I want to point out. Uh, Shadow of your wings. This is a reference to the wings of the cherubim. Think of an angel. And I sing in the, in, the, in the shadow of your wings. It is like another image of nearness and closeness. He's not literally in the shadow of angels' wings. We know that, but it's another image of David trying to express how close he wants to be to God. So I sing in the shadow, uh, in the wings of the cherubim. Okay? Uh, and then I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Uh, cling, another translation for that is I follow hard after you. Uh, you'll probably read that in the New King James. I'll follow hard after you. But cling's a great word, passionate pursuit for God. This is interesting. This word has the exact same sense as we find in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 says this, man leaves his father and mother and will be united to his wife. That word united to his wife is the same word as cling. So we're talking like intimate, close, near. It's the same word that talks about joining or gluing together. David found the word that talks about the closest kind of intimacy that he could experience with God and used it. I cling to you. It's not just up here for David, right? I cling to you. I follow hard after you. I seek hard after you. Verse 9 and 10. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and they will become food for jackals. Okay, Uh, sometimes the Psalms do this. They get a little bit... Like for us, modern day readers, it gets a little bit, whoa, now we're talking about like battle scenes and dead bodies and stuff. Like, why are we going here? But remember, David's literally being hunted by his enemies. And he lives in a culture where this, you know, he's been on battlefields. He's seen dead bodies eaten by jackals. Uh, And so David's deep communion with God did not take away his problems. There's still people that wanted to kill him. And yet, in in this psalm, the deep, there's deep communion even in the midst of things going in and out. There's still communion in the midst of the wilderness. This is why prosperity gospel, I think, is so dangerous. Prosperity gospel is a gospel that says, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be wealthy and healthy and happy and clappy all the days of your life. And the reality is we all know it's not true. And you don't have to read very far in your Bible to realize it's not true. And David is as close to God as anybody can be, and he's being hunted. It's not prosperity gospel stuff. We live in the real world where really bad things happen, and we experience that. That's reality. But know this, God is with us, and God journeys with us. Uh, David trusted God to deal with his enemies. There's this trust. In the midst of troubled times, David knows God will deal with his enemies. David doesn't do it himself. You guys will recall, David had many opportunities to kill Saul. He never did it. He said, justice belongs to God. It's not mine to take. God will take care of it. So he trusts that God will bring about justice. In God's timing and in God's way, justice will be done. And so David like, sits in that and trusts that God knows what he's doing. 
Last verse. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So God is faithful, and God will complete his promises to us. David wasn't king yet, but he was going to become king. And so he just needed to wait for God to fulfill that promise. And what happened? He did become king. So God will work it out. I think what we see in these last few sections of this psalm is this inner contentment. That in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of being hunted, in the midst of the fear, there's like this contentment. God's got this. I can trust in him. God will work it out. Just be done. And I think, as I've reflected on this psalm a lot this week, I think the contentment and the inner David feels in these last few verses are a result of what we read in the first few verses. It's a result of this seeking hard after God. It's a result of this clinging to God. It's the result of this uh, knowing God personally and intimately. And because of that and out of that, he can be at peace. That even though he's in the wilderness and even though life is difficult and he's being hunted, God is faithful, God is trustworthy, God will work it out in his way and in his timing. And that's what David really sits on for himself in these last few verses. And so the message of Psalm 63, I think, is this. Though the wilderness is our environment, trust in the living God is our reality. I'll say that again. The wilderness is our environment. Trust in the living God is our reality. So God, or David, is considered a man after God's own heart. And I think we really see a glimpse of why in this psalm. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek after you. My soul thirsts for you like a dry and like my body cries out for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What an amazing that David had. A desire to know and connect and to feel the nearness of God, to not just have it up here, but to really live it and experience in here. And so I, I think back to John Chrysostom's church. And he said to the church of the whole area, make this an everyday practice to read this psalm, pray this psalm, meditate on it. So if you're looking for some homework from your pastor, I'm not really your pastor, but if you're looking for some homework, read this, pray this, memorize this. You know, let, this let this be an expression of your prayer life. Let this be your desire. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek after you.